while I get uh, set up, uh, just turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. So everyone's uh, found Galatians 3 all right? Um, we're not going to stand and read today like we normally do because I'm going to do the entire chapter and there's lots to say today, so I'd like to just read it as we go along. And uh, for those of you who are new or maybe even missed last week, I just want to let you know that this is part two of a sermon that began last week. And last week's sermon was about the sufficiency of the cross in terms of what Christ accomplished for us and the victory it provided um, in us and for us. So it's about the sufficiency of what Jesus did at Calvary. And the cross, as we spoke about, was not a piece of wood or metal. The, the def definition of the cross was really about what Christ accomplished for us. And there were two realities from last week's sermon of the cross of Christ. And the realities will be up here. We talked about the cross being the basis of God's total provision for every believer. Every spiritual blessing we have today and for eternity was because of the cross of Christ and what was accomplished. It's also the basis for Jesus' total defeat of Satan. It's the total defeat of the sin and death that he brought into this world. Now, because Satan's a defeated enemy, a defeated foe, he uses a very different tactic in the church because he can't change his reality that he's, that he's a, a victim to Christ. But what he can do is mess us up. And the way he does that is he hides the reality or deceives us into thinking that what Christ accomplished for us isn't enough. And so we fail to walk in victory on a regular basis. A church that fell into this trap was the church of Galatia. They had done something that absolutely shocked Paul, and that was they were returning to the law of Moses as a way of trying to save themselves. Christ's sacrifice was not enough for their salvation. It required law. It required circumcision. It required feasts and festival observation as well. And Paul's big message to the Galatians was, what are you doing? You've been delivered from that. Now, to remind you, why did I even bring up the law? Isn't that like, you know, 4,000 years ago or even 2,000 years ago? You know, why are we even talking about this in the Christian community? Well, because it still has relevance today in that there are people today in the Christian community that believe that certain aspects of the Mosaic Law need to be observed in order for you to be right with God. And I asked the question, how many of you in here have come across people in that category and virtually everybody's hand went up? So it has touched our community at different aspects in our lives. And if you're new to the faith, you will encounter one day people that will really adhere to food laws and certain things that they believe are necessary for today's walk with Jesus. And your salvation's in jeopardy if you don't walk in those ways. Now, we talked about also the law um, being beyond just the, what Moses taught or brought to the Israelite people. He uses the term perfected by the flesh. So any, any type of... Um, attempt to achieve righteousness with God by observing any system or any set of rules is legalistic. It's legalism. It's trying to add to the cross of Christ what he's already accomplished. 
And so last week's sermon was to speak to the relevant things that happen in the Christian community and to look at what Paul said. And there were six reasons, six reasons why Paul taught that what Christ accomplished on the cross was sufficient. And that, in fact, it was about faith in Jesus and not law that always um, meant that someone was saved. And so we looked at the first one from last week. I'll just review it again. The first basis for why it was faith and not law was the law is not the means by which we receive the Holy Spirit. We covered that last week in verses 2 to 5. When you received the Holy Spirit, you were listening to the gospel. You responded to the gospel in faith, and the Holy Spirit was given to you at that moment. And I used a graphic illustration. You're 25 years old, you're a Gentile, and you hear about circumcision. And Paul's asking this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you got circumcised? Right? And it's an obvious no. It was when you heard by faith. Right? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were attending a feast or a festival? The answer is no. You received the Holy Spirit when you responded by faith. And I had the kids come up and do an illustration. And you know what? I'm such a doughhead. I completely forgot about the main part of why I did the illustration. And because I knew what it was, no one else caught it. But I missed the whole point of bringing the kids up here. So, can you please come up again, Remples? to help me actually fulfill what I was supposed to do last week. I made the comment that I grew up in the Christian church, right, as a kid, and, and missed something that I didn't want the kids in here to miss. And then I missed the part that was important to talk about. And I gave the gospel, but I knew the gospel as a kid, but it was about the Holy Spirit that I didn't understand. So let's do this again. Okay. <laughs> so the illustration last week was simple. God in, created humanity sinless and perfect. We were in perfect relationship with him and there was no separation between man and God. But man sinned. And so man creates separation. So again, without being prideful, I'm going to be God. <laughs> okay? And we can take our, our roles again. So Adeline in the fluffy uh, pink uh, sweater there, she's going to represent mankind. Okay? So, when, when we sin, we create separation from God. So Adeline and I can't be in relationship because of sin. But God, as God, I love humanity. So I have to do something to repair what's broken. So I send Jesus Christ to the earth to die on the cross for Adeline's sin. She hears uh, someone, let's say Jared, preaching the gospel of Christ. She's convicted. She believes that Christ died for her. And so in faith, she responds to the message of what Jared's preaching. I, as God, who know all things and hear all things, have heard Adeline's cry for forgiveness and mercy. And when she receives Jesus Christ, the sin between us is broken, and then I can be in relationship with mankind for putting faith in my son. Now here's the cool thing, the part that I completely forgot. And if you could throw fast forward here, uh, Randy. At this point, she receives the Holy Spirit. It's God's gift. In responding to faith, I send the Holy Spirit, and she has the Holy Spirit come upon her and in her. We always talk in the Christian community about entering the heart. 
Well, let's be honest, it enters the mind. He enters the mind, because that's where we're, all of our thought processes are. I make that joke because if you had a heart transplant, the Holy Spirit doesn't go to the next person, right? It's in your conscience. So the Holy Spirit indwells your thoughts, your emotions, your will. Now here's what's really cool. When Joseph got a dream, and he was told to take Mary as his wife, um, he said, I'm sending my son. He is God with us, Emmanuel. So when Jesus was on this earth, he was with humanity. But then, when he sent the Holy Spirit, it changes. It's no longer God with us, it's God in us. The Holy Spirit is God in us. That's why Jesus says, I have to die, I have to go. It's better that I go. Why? Because Jesus is, he never defined, defied the, the, the sort of laws of nature in terms of like leaving Israel to go to North America. <laughs> he stayed in Israel as a human person so that when the Spirit was sent, it could touch everybody's life across the world and it could be God in someone. And this is why when Paul or Peter was in Acts given the gospel, and they say, what do we do? Because they realized they crucified Jesus. He said, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So again, Paul's saying this, you don't need the law. You don't need the law. When I sent my spirit and mankind received me, the spirit came into this person and dwelt in her in faith. There was no law required. It's just purely by faith. Okay, kids? So please remember that. When you hear the Holy Spirit be spoken of, it's God in you. It's rela He's relational. And it's through faith that you receive him, not through any efforts of the flesh, not trying to do better in life, be better in life, all these types of things. Okay. Second reason why the law never saves, and it's through faith, is found in uh, this comment here, that the law never saved Abraham. Why not the law? The law never saved Abraham, verses 6 through 9. Let's read that together. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those of who are faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. The story of Abraham is super significant and of extreme importance to Paul in terms of helping both Jews and Gentiles understand the role of the law and faith in making someone right with God. And for Paul, it's about the order of things. It's about the order of things. You see, in verse 6, when, when he quotes that um, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, he's quoting from Genesis 15, where God made a promise very specific to Abraham, a promise in which Abraham responded. And let's see if it's up there. Yeah, here's the, here's, here's the exchange between God and Abraham. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid. I'm your shield, your, ward, your, sorry, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I'm childless? The Lord took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. 
Two chapters later in Genesis, Genesis 17, the Lord then asks Abraham to get circumcised, him and his household, as a sign that they were in covenant relationship. But here's the question. When was Abraham circumcised? Before or after the Lord credited righteousness to him? After. Paul, in the, in the Galatian letters, says, if that's the case, if Abraham was declared righteous before circumcision, why are you returning to the law and making people in the church get circumcised? It never made Abraham right with God. It started by faith for him. Don't you remember Genesis 15? And so look at, Gen look at Galatians 5, 6, and read this with me. And I'm just going to give you one verse, but the whole section is important. Look at 5.6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. He says, you want to get circumcised? Fine. You don't want to get circumcised? That's fine too. It's always been about faith. And let that decision be about something else. Maybe your own expression of how you want to show love for God. But it means nothing to salvation. And so... Paul, this was his custom, hey? He did the very single thing, the same thing to the Roman church as well. Rome's going through the same issue. And look at what Paul says to Rome in Romans 4, 9 through 12. Now, is this blessing only for the Jews or is it also for the uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we've been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? That's a really good question. <laughs> Was he counted as righteousness only after he was circumcised or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already, already had faith that God had accepted him and declared him to be righteous. So Abraham is a spiritual father of those who have faith but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. This is really important, too, because Abraham is the first Jew ever. The Jewish race, Israel as a nation, did not exist as a people group. Abraham is the first Jew. That's why when you look at the Pharisees debating the Jesus all the time, they're talking about, well, our father is Abraham, our father is Abraham. And what does God or Jesus always do with these Pharisees? He says, yeah, it means nothing, because you don't exercise the faith of Abraham all you care about is the bloodline lineage. But if you're truly children of Abraham, behave like Abraham, believe like Abraham, act like Abraham. He was one of faith, not one of like following the law, the traditions of men. It's a really powerful argument because it undoes any Jewish elitism in the church and any Gentile pressure to get become more Jewish, if you will. So Abraham's the prototype and so why, Paul says, are you returning to the law when you look at the founding forefather of faith? It makes absolutely no sense. Number three, the law brings a curse upon people. Let's read this together. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. 
These are strong words. Like Canadians don't like words like cursed, right? Talk about hate speech. If you, Paul's saying the people who follow the law are a cursed people. Yeah, I saw like that's strong language, but it's not my language. I'm just I'm just the messenger. Is there? But notice the reason for why Paul says that you're cursed. He says it's because 100% obedience is required in order to not be found guilty. It's not just a case of getting it 90% right to be declared righteous. If you want to be righteous before God, who's sinless, you have to be 100% righteous and 100% perfect. I mean, let's think, about, think of it this way in a human illustration. Imagine the, a relationship with God today was based on obeying the laws of Okotoks or Calgary or Alberta, the civil laws. So forget the moral laws. Let's just talk civil laws, like everything you can think about, right? So you're thinking, well, I'm a pretty darn good citizen. I pay my taxes. I don't steal. I water my garden on my lawn according to the town's schedule. <laughs> No conviction here on my part, but uh, in 10 years, I actually have a perfect track record on this. But there's a problem. You and I own a car and a truck and a Jeep. And there's these little pesky rules that get in the way of you and I enjoying our car. There's white signs with numbers on them. There's even red ones that we think should be made yellow. And so we treat them with contempt. One day we get caught. One day we get caught after 10 years, right? We stand before the judge and we're there to get our, our fine. And before we receive the fine, the judge says, I have a question for you. Do you have anything to plead? And you say, I think I'm guilty in these areas, but I think you should let me go and drop the charges. And the judge asks you, why? And you say, well, because I've watered my lawn according to the schedule, and I've paid my taxes, and I don't steal. I think my goodness should outweigh my badness. What do you think the judge is going to say to you? I've never, yeah, dismissed, right? Not a chance. You will become the laughingstock of court. You wouldn't even actually, I know this, you would never even have the audacity or even the courage to even declare that as your defense. That's on the civil law. Forget the moral law. You see what Paul's saying? Why in the world would you bank on the law? It brings a curse upon you. It's either 100% or nothing. You're not going to stand before God and say, I watered my lawn on the right town schedule when there's other things that he could say, yeah, but I know you're guilty over here. My son was sinless. That's why he is your substitute and your only hope to salvation. With that in mind now, look at how Paul finishes the section. Verse 12. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, who who practice them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles 
so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus took the curse of our sins upon himself, took it on the cross, died in our place so that we would be freed from the penalty of what the law inflicts on us, which is nothing but a guilty charge. Jesus as the innocent takes the place of the guilty so that by faith in him, when God looks at us, he doesn't see you and I, he sees the blood of his son covering us. That is why we're accepted by God based on faith. So the law is a curse. And Peter understood this. In Acts 15.10 at the Jerusalem Council, when they were debating whether law should be part of faith or not, he says, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter reflects through his own Jewishness, his own life, the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the, the whole list of them, and he says, no one's ever been curse-free from the law. No one. Paul's solution, you look to the, the, the sufficiency of what Christ has done. Number four reason, the law is not required. The law was a later addition to what God promised to Abraham. Verses 15 through 18. Before we speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it apart or sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to his seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Peter once said in the scriptures that Paul is really hard to understand. And I'm glad he said that because uh, he was a contemporary of Paul. They were buddies and were both trained by Jesus. And so if you're confused about what was just said there, you're in good company. So let me try to unconfuse you to the best of the Spirit's ability. <laughs> Paul is saying to the Galatian church, okay, let's return once again to Abraham's story. You'll notice in this story that Paul mentions the word promise four times. And I teach from the NASB, so I looked up the NIV and NLT, which is very common in our church. And the cool thing is in both versions, promise occurs four times. So it's universal. Promise, promise, promise. Verse 16, verse 17, verse 18 times two. <laughs> okay, promise. He's saying Go back to Abraham's story and remember what God promised. The fullness of what God promised can be found in Genesis 12 and 15. But the part that Paul wants to highlight is how what, what, um, the fulfillment of what came through Abraham's line, which was Jesus. Through Abraham's bloodline, Jesus was going to be born. He was going to come into the world. And he's saying the fulfillment of this promise was that Christ was coming. Now, again, for Paul, the order of things is important. He said, when the promise was made to Abraham about Jesus coming, was it before or after the law? And the answer is, it came before the law. Verse 17 says, the law came 430 years 
after God promised that Jesus was going to come through Abraham. Not only promised, but ratified. What does ratified mean? It means the terms are fully agreed upon. It's signed, sealed, and delivered. And if, you, if you're interested, it was done through uh, the cutting of animals. And the animals were um, on the ground. And the cool thing was, in that day, people would often walk between the animals in covenants to say, may this be done to me, this death, if I don't uphold the end of my bargain. In Abraham's covenant, Abraham was asleep. God didn't wake him up to walk through the parts. God, representing a flaming torch, walked through the parts on his own. Meaning that I'm fulfilling this under no conditions. It's me and me alone. I'm fulfilling it. Man, like, you know, I want you to be obedient to me, but this is a covenant that I'm fulfilling and I'm bringing this to fruition. Christ is coming. You're not unaltering that. It's not dependent on you. This is a done deal. It's ratified, signed, sealed, and delivered. And again, so Paul's saying, if this is the case, why are you going back to the law and adding something that came 400 years later? God is not going to break his promise and even change the conditions by adding anything to it later on. What was promised was promise. And I love it because he, to start this whole argument off in verse 15, he gives a human illustration of how we don't even break promises that are ratified. In verse 15, he says, Brethren, I speak in human relations. Even though it's only a man's covenant, yet when it's been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So, human illustration that we would understand. I don't know if all of you know D, but D's in the front row here. Nice scarf on and ready to rock. Yeah. <laughs> So Dee, Dee loves to write children's books, and she's really good at them. She also loves music, and she's good at that too. You can even ask her dog, who howls along when she plays a few notes. I have a witness of a video of that. So anyway, so Dee and I make an arrangement. We enter into a covenant, and here's the covenant. I have kids. I really want her to write a children's book for my children. But in exchange, being musical, she knows I play the violin. So she wants some violin lessons in exchange. We both agree that that's a fair deal, and we both agree that March 1st is a good time to fulfill our end of the bargain. So we agree, and we ratify it with a ceremony. You know, maybe um, a handshake, sing Amazing Grace, <laughs> whatever, right? We have a ceremony, it's ratified. March 1st comes along, Dee and I are excited because it's time to exchange our, our, um, uh, our things. She hands me the book and she goes, I hope you enjoy it. And now she waits in anticipation for what I'm to bring her, and that's the violin. The violin's beside me, but I won't hand it over. And I say to her, Dee, I'm changing my mind. I'm changing the conditions. I would like to add something in order for you to receive this instrument. I'd like a month of singing lessons on top of that. And what do you think D is going to say to me? That sounds great, or you can't do that. We never agree to that. You've broken our deal. You've broken the conditions of our promise. And Paul's saying to the Galatians, that's the same with God. Why are you adding something to a covenant that God never intended to be part of salvation in the first place. 
It's always been about Jesus and what he's going to accomplish for you. So why are you adding the law and breaking the conditions that God made with Abraham? Brilliant argument if you're a Jew or a Gentile pressured into becoming Jewish. Because here's what would happen to you. You could think, well, because God gave the law at Mount Sinai, God was instituting a new way or a different method by which one would become righteous with God. And Paul's saying, no, not a chance. That was never God's intention. Salvation was always based on the promise of Christ's coming, not the law that came four centuries later. Fifth reason why no law. The purpose of the law was to reveal sin. Verses 19 through 22. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to when the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for only one party only, whereas God is only one. There's a law then contrary to the promises of God. May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise of, by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Again, like Paul's so easy to understand. So let's just focus really on one verse. Uh, verse 19. Why the law? Great question. Because Paul, if Paul is really teaching that the law doesn't save, the natural question in the church would be, well, why, what good is it then? What's its purpose? If it doesn't have anything to do with salvation, why do we even care? And Paul says, it was added because of transgressions. In other words, the law is there to reveal sin in one's life. The law provides the measuring stick in which sin can be identified. So, just an example. In the general sense, kids, uh, you all know that you're to respect your parents. You're to respect your parents. But there are times when you just don't. But you, you feel kind of bad about it, but that's really as far as it goes. You kind of just move on to the next thing and off you go, off with your friends. But then the law comes. And you're at Mount Sinai. And you hear this commandment. It's commandment number five. And the commandment is, honor your father and mother. Now, when you go to disrespect your parents you know for sure that you've done wrong. In the general sense, you're like, this is not good, but I'm going to ignore it. But the law is read out loud. And every time you disrespect them, the fifth commandment comes, you broke God's law, you broke God's law, you're sinned, you've sinned, you've sinned. <laughs> and you should feel bad about that. This is what Paul's saying. And this is also why Paul's saying the law itself does not save. All it does is reveals that you need saving. It can't save you. It reveals that you need God's help, that you need God's mercy. And that's a massive difference between saving you and revealing that you need saving. Massive difference. And that's what Paul's saying to us here too. All the, why the law? It actually drives you to the reality that you know you've done wrong and that you need the Lord. And this is what 
this is why he concludes this section in verse 22 with a beautiful statement. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. And that's the point. And finally, the last point. The last point. The law had a temporary purpose and that was meant to lead people to Christ. Verse 23 forward. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor there is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So what does he say? The law had a temporary purpose and was meant to lead people to Christ. We really pick up the temporary purpose of the, na of the nature of the law when you understand the word tutor. The word tutor is sort of misleading because you automatically think of school teacher. Now there is some truth to that part of being a tutor, like there was some teaching involved in this role, but the word in Greek is actually better, better translated guardian or child attender. In our context, probably the best word we have is nanny. A nanny or babysitter. But nanny better because of the role of a nanny. In the Greco-Roman culture, families often had household slaves, although it wasn't limited to household slaves. But they had household slaves that usually would, uh, their job was to be the tutor, the guardian, the nanny. And their job was to watch over the children until they came to the age of maturity and were full-statured teenagers. So they would supervise play. They'd make sure they get to school safely. They'd oversee their daily routine and teach them morals and manners. But here's the point. A guardian, a tutor, served a temporary function because everybody knew once those kids became teenagers, they were to be released into independence. And the tutor was no longer to be there to watch over them. Paul says that's exactly what the law is there for. It watches over you. It acts as a guardian. In some sense, it gives you moral guidance. But it's only temporary in nature until something greater comes along. And then you're to be released. And what's the something greater? Jesus. Faith in him redeeming you from the law. And that's what I love about it in verse 26. For all, for you all, are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are baptized in him, and there's neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male or female, if you're all one in him. And you're Abraham's descendants according to the promise. So again, there's no need for the law or any form of legalism in a Christian life. It's about the sufficiency of the cross, and if we've missed that, we have failed to understand Actually, Satan's got us because we're playing in his territory. Remember what he said to the Galatians, who's bewitched you? Well, who's cast a spell on you that belongs to sorcerers, witches, psychics? He's saying, who's bewitched you? Like, how did the devil get a hold of your life and make you lose the realities 
of what Christ has accomplished. And I want to finish with reading this to you. This is, a, this is an incredible uh, summary. Um, this comes from a commentary I have by a guy named Schreiner. Here's how he defines a like, summary statement of the, of the law in relation to faith. He said, I heard somewhere this analogy. The law is like a cage. It has bars. Or sorry, if it has bars, it can keep a lion from eating the lamb. But it cannot prevent the lion from wanting to eat the lamb. Let's not think that a polite child, which is a good thing, who says, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, is the same thing as a child who is born again. All of this might cause us to think that the law works against the promise since it brings death and kills us, but the law is like the stick that drives us to the promise. Amen. Amen. So last week we spoke about this. The law extends, principally speaking, to any set of rules or regulations that we instill in our own lives that we think that make us righteous with God. It can be your own. It can be your denominations. It can be your grandparents. Their own laws of what it is to be righteous before God. And last week we had a time of prayer for those who were willing to come forward and receive prayer, if they felt that the Holy Spirit was saying to them in any part of their life that they have legalistic tendencies. So how do you know? Well, here's one, here's a good one. Like, um, if I don't do this, God's going to reject me. Right? If I do that, he's going to make me more holy. That kind of thought process, Right? But another one, some other questions to determine whether we are sort of rightly connected to the Lord in, how, in terms of our thinking would be something like this. How do you know if you're in a works relationship or a love relationship with the Father? Here's a question. When you sin, are you simply sorry that you got caught and that you're found out? Or are you sorry that you hurt the Lord? If you got caught, are you more sorry you hurt God or are you more sorry that you got caught? If you're more sorry that you got caught, you are in a works relationship. You're returning to the law because it's not about the relationship of what Christ did for you on the cross. When sin, when you sin, is the first thing you want to do is go to him to repair the damaged relationship or is the attitude, I'm just going to try harder and try better next time? One says you're in a love relationship, and it's by grace and by faith. And one says you're in a works relationship. And finally, or when you sin and break God's commands, do you feel like you hurt the Father in heaven, which is a love relationship, or do you want to hide it and try to just sort of ignore it? and pretend like everything is going to go away, which would show us that we're in a works relationship. 
See, Paul's teaching is 2,000 years old, but it's incredibly relevant for all of us. And I'd be lying to you as your pastor to tell you that I have not fallen into that trap myself. So the message of, the, of Paul is just as much it is for me as it is for you. But I do want to open up the floor once again to prayer. If you, if I, in those questions, if you found yourself leaning to more the work side of things in those questions, then we would like to offer you prayer this morning. We will have some of our, our leaders and people stand at the front. If you'd like to come forward, we, if there's a bunch of us, we can just do one-on-one -on -one or two-on-one, -on -one and we can just pray for you. But if, the, if, if you have found yourself bewitched, if you found yourself where you've, you feel like you're not set free and you've lost vision of the cross of Christ, there's no shame in coming forward. Last week when we prayed these prayers, the majority of people that came forward were our leaders in our church. The majority. And maybe we have more work to do today as, as the Spirit's working in us. But please, come forward and we'll pray for you. I'll close in prayer. And then uh, those of you who have to dismiss and go, then please feel free. But if you would like to be prayed for, you're welcome here. Or if you'd like to continue to hang out and, uh, and mingle with one another, that's fine too. So that don't feel um, pressure. There's those three options are available to all of you. Yeah, so anyway, let's pray. Father, right now, even as I'm praying, there'll be people in this church that know that they're more on the work side of things than the grace side of things. But they'll also be scared to come forward I know that um, if, this was, if I was, the situation was reversed, I would be scared to come forward. But I pray, Lord, that that would not stop anyone because there's no, there's no sense of condemnation in you. Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Every one of us who are honest would know that we've fallen into this place at some point in our life. And so this is about being set free. This is about the deliverance that you have to offer us. This has nothing to do with being shameful or or anything like that. This is about you giving us freedom, Lord, which is what you want for us. I pray, God, that um, you, uh, your spirit would have your way in people this morning and your presence would be known. In Jesus' name, amen.